turning to the book of Isaiah to continue our series of three sermons on this first or introductory chapter in the book. So Isaiah chapter 1, we'll read the first 17 verses. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is a, an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot weigh with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto the, me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands... I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, these two verses are our text. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. 
So far, God's word, may he bless the reading and the preaching of it this morning. As we said last week, the prophecy of Isaiah comes to Jerusalem and to Judah, who were going the same way as the ten northern tribes went in apostasy. And therefore there is desolation in the land. And now the word of the Lord comes in order to bring comfort to his elect people. The elect people that are a small little remnant, a hut or a booth in a garden of cucumbers. You'll remember that this prophecy comes during the early part of the king Hezekiah's reign. No, not Hezekiah, of Uzziah's reign. And during King Uzziah, things look still pretty good for Israel, for, for Judah and Jerusalem. That is, there had been a revival brought by King Uzziah. The nation was pretty powerful, and there was prosperity. And even religiously, they carried out the instructions of the Lord of how to worship exactly, so it all looks favorable. But then Isaiah comes, and he comes with a message of rebuke, and of warning, and of judgment, and a call to conversion. And Judah and Jerusalem say, who is this man? What is this message that he's bringing? Look how religious we are. Surely we are God's people. He should be pleased with us. But God was not pleased. There is a call to conversion for Judah and Jerusalem. That call comes also to the elect who are part of that nation. And that call comes this morning to you and to me by God's word. A call to conversion. And you say, what, us? Look, we're here twice on Sunday. We're going to have the sacrament next week. We teach our kids at home and send them to a Christian school. Surely all things are well. Conversion, isn't that something that's needed for those heathen folk down in Africa? But the Lord comes to his own as well as the church in general and to all mankind. Repent. Repent of your sins. So notice with me on this preparatory Sunday, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table next week, the need for true conversion. We're going to notice the Lord's accusation. Second of all, the genuine repentance that is required. And thirdly, the new life that is called for. The need for true conversion beginning with the Lord's accusation. And you'll notice that verse 10 
begins the same way that verse 2 does. In verse 2, it is, Hear, O heavens, and give earth, O Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. They are witnesses. Now that same word comes to Judah and Jerusalem, including the elect that are that hut in the cucumber garden. Here, witness these words, what I have to say to you. What a command. And that is the command to you and me this morning as we come underneath God's word. And God addresses his word here, and they are terrible words, aren't they? Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Is that any way to talk about the church? Doesn't that sound insulting? Weren't you and I insulted in the last years when our churches were called whores or Babylon? And now Isaiah, led by God, addresses the church and he says, rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. Oh, except for the remnant a remnant that is spared, yes, the fate of Judah would have been exactly the same of that of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were completely destroyed. But while they are not completely destroyed in iniquity, Jerusalem and Judah have become a spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking about all the inhabitants there. Sodom. In destruction, Judah was almost like Sodom, but in wickedness, she is identical. And notice the word of God addresses, first of all, the rulers, the rulers who lead God's people into sin, and then the people themselves. Hear the word of the Lord, rulers of Sodom, Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. For they are a city of hypocrites. Hear now the message. Give attention to it. In other words, they must hear because they bear a responsibility. They are moral agents. It is God's word, not Isaiah's word. And because it's God's word, it is authoritative. Authoritative not only as a rule of our faith, but also of our practice, our worship in our life. So it's not how you feel about yourselves or how you look at yourselves or how even others look at you but it is a hearing that results in obedience to the thing that is heard. It's the same as what James writes in James chapter 1, verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. 
So looking at Jerusalem and to Judah, outwardly it looks to be pious and religious, doesn't it? Verse 11. There's a multitude of sacrifices. There's burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed beasts. There's the blood of bullocks and of lambs, of he goats. Yes, the carrying out of the religious practices was continuing. But they were spiritually wicked. And the terrible sin is laid out, isn't it, in verse 5. Why should ye be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more, we read there. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. And finally, it is summed up in verse 15. You make many prayers, but I won't hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, John Calvin said the hands are full of blood because they've been sacrificing all these animals, and those who sacrifice the animals get bloody hands. But that's not really what is being pictured here. Delich, in his commentary, points out it's the blood of violence. It's the blood of wicked deeds that their hands are covered while they are worshiping God. Hands full of blood. They're murderers. Their actions are wicked. They do all kinds of evil They oppress their neighbors. They do not plead the cause of those who are oppressed. They commit injustice and unrighteousness of all kinds. They pick on the weak and the helpless. And why? Why? Because they're concerned with themselves. Because they want honor for themselves. They prefer their name above anyone else's name. They're looking after their own person, their own position, their own prosperity. What is their sin? It's a sin of pride. It's a lust of the flesh. It's the hardness of heart. It is the lack of living the antithesis. So what's going on here? What is this condemnation or accusation that the Lord is bringing? There is a disconnect between their worship and their life. A disconnect of their worship and their life. Now both of those are outward. You can see them, can't you? So he's not making a contrast now between the worship that they have when they come together in their inner piety. He's not talking about what's inward. He's talking about outward. Their outward worship and then their outward behavior. And the prophet speaking for God. He says, with all of your outward worship, obedience to how God says it must be, he must be worshiped, it clashes. It clashes with how you carry out your life. And so your worship is really sham piety. Seeming religious, but guilty of a wicked walk and a corrupt heart. And there's one word to that. Repent. Repent. 
If we would compare that today, it would be to what we call Sunday Christians. On Sunday, we dress up in our dudes to look good. We worship even twice on Sunday. We go have sacraments this coming week. Christian schools, we pay our budget. But on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, we don't look any different than the world. We have crosswords with our spouses. We're impatient with the children, and maybe the children are very disobedient. We're crooked in our business. We put others down in order to elevate ourselves. There is a disconnect between what they are saying on Sunday. We love God. We want to worship him. And what they do Monday through Saturday, living like the world. Beloved, we need to see that contrast sharply and correctly. These folks there in Jerusalem and Judah were oppressing that hut in the cucumber garden, the elect. Yes, they are poor, they are weak, of themselves unable to stand. They are the remnant according to grace. And God's attitude is clearly expressed in this text. He finds their worship an abomination. And he finds them an abomination. Worshiping, but then not living out that. The prophets continue to bring that home, don't they? Boys and girls, you will remember when the prophet Samuel had to go to King Saul. Saul was disobeying the Lord. And we read in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. The prophet Hosea makes the same kind of comparisons. We read then Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Or in Amos chapter 5, we read, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. You see, beloved, that our worship of God on Sunday doesn't make up for now a week when we live for ourselves or we live for sin and for Satan. But our worship on, on the Sabbath day should carry through 
worship by our lives. Our lives. And that's what we're supposed to examine, isn't it, this week? Our lives. Am I truly sorrowful for my sin? Do I know that sin? Do I hate that sin? Do I trust in Jesus Christ as my only Savior, my only hope? Do I desire and am I trying to live a godly life of service to Christ? So we have, beloved, before us nine different admonitions that come to the church. Nine admonitions. And what they do is they make clear the difference between a true and a false righteousness. A true and a false righteousness. Judah and Jerusalem were guilty of a false righteousness. Oh, didn't we do the the sacrifices just right, exactly the way God commands us. We gave him the best of the flocks. Surely he should be happy with us. but living ungodly lives the rest of the week. What is true righteousness? And we read there in verse 16, wash you. Wash you. He's not talking now about those ceremonial washings. Oh, they were good at doing those things. But he's talking about in the moral sense, wash yourselves. A cleansing of your heart and a cleansing of the flesh from all the defilement and filthiness of sin. James again, James 4, verse 8, very practical book. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Only... Only if the blood of violence is washed away with the nation's prayers will be heard. So this command is brought to sinners, but it has been greatly misunderstood, right? Wash your hands and then your prayers will be heard. And so you got the Roman Catholic teaching of doing penance. You somehow got to pay for your sins. Either we're doing Hail Marys or otherwise pay money to the church. That's the way you wash yourself, they say. Our text, beloved, is not talking about or prescribing acts of penance. However, a thorough reformation of the heart, a reformation such as God alone can produce, Now you say, how in the world can God now demand of us a cleansing that is anything less than what God himself can give? Such a cleansing wouldn't be a cleansing at all. But you see, Isaiah here is addressing Israel, that is, he is Judah and Jerusalem. He's addressing them as moral agents. Moral agents who are responsible for their lives and have the ability to live their lives. God is addressing sinners, 
requiring that they put away sin and make themselves a new heart. And now that's the Pelagian error. They say, yes, man is born without any sins. He learns sin, and now he has the ability somewhere that he can get rid of his sins, wash them away, that he has the ability to do what God commands. No, he doesn't. Not one sinner does. John Calvin writes, Now we know that the sacred writers attribute to man what is worked in them by the Spirit of God, whom Ezekiel calls clean water, because to him alone belongs the work of repentance. You see, man himself cannot wash himself. Only God can do so. So it is not the act of repentance itself, God wrought as it is, which brings a sinner favor from God. Although without repentance, God's favor will not come to us, the sinners. So how should these inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah be expected to react when they hear this? This command by Isaiah, wash you, wash you. Well, he has to stop his evil doings. He has to turn to the Lord. He has to trust God's promises. And he has to seek to live according to God's will and his commandments. And the sinner in himself does not have that power to do it, does he? When he repents, though, it is evidence that God has worked in his heart. True washing is God's work, a work of God alone. And the only thing, the only thing that can wash away your or my sins, the only thing that can wash away the blood of violence in our life is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. So wash you. Moral agents, God's wonderful work. We look to him, and he does that work. Wash you, make you clean, the second command that comes. It belongs with washing you, doesn't it? In other words, wash yourselves completely clean. It's the result of washing. And the thought is, Wash yourselves, and having once washed yourselves, make you clean. Washing and making clean has reference to our justification and forgiveness of our sins. That justification and that forgiveness can only take place through reconciliation with God. And reconciliation with God can take place only through the atonement. And the atonement takes place only through complete satisfaction of God's justice. And that complete satisfaction of God's righteousness can and does take place only through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why the Apostle Paul wants to know nothing 
but Christ Jesus and him crucified. The application of the power and the merit of Christ justifying blood gives forgiveness. And in only that way can the wickedness of their deeds and the wickedness of your and my deeds be removed from God's sight. Wash you and make you clean. By the blood of Jesus Christ, atonement is made. God's justice is satisfied. He died for us in our place so that we are justified and we are forgiven our sins. But what is true repentance? <coughs> what is genuine repentance? Not only are saying sorry, but it is also turning aside. So this washing and making clean, this forgiveness is received only in the way of heart felt sorrow over sin. It is received only in the way of self-humiliation in dust and ashes by which a person cries out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. May that be your prayer this week, each day. May that be my prayer each day this week. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It means, beloved, that we spiritually get down on our knees with heartfelt sorrow over our sin. God will receive you. And God will receive you not because you get down on your knees and not because you humble yourselves. What, would, what good would that do as far as God's forgiveness is concerned? No, God will receive you and God will receive me because of the cross of Jesus Christ and his atoning blood. Ungodly Sodom and Gomorrah must have his word. And having that word, it will not turn, will they? It becomes a word of testimony against Sodom and Gomorrah. But that word, repent you, leave your sins, is first and foremost for the elect, for you and for me. We have to hear it because, by nature, we're not one bit different than anyone else in the world. We're no different than that godless Sodom, that old nature that is the source of all these sins, is still with us, isn't it? And against which we have to fight. And that word repent comes then to the hut that is in the garden of cucumbers. We need to hear it because too often we're sound asleep in the midst of Sodom. And we need to hear that word, repent, so that we are jarred awake and recognize our sins and come to repentance. And that need of hearing that word, repent, comes to the elect who awake must hear it. So that watching 
They read comfort in God's word. Comfort that, yes, though our sins are many in number, they are all washed away. That comfort that we find in very verse 20, we didn't read that verse, did we? Verse 18, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Yes, hear that cry. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, and enjoy, enjoy the forgiveness and cleansing that God gives. And justification shows itself in sanctification. In other words, that is the fruit of justification. Those two go together. One is not justified if they continue to walk in sin. Then they haven't tasted that rightness that God gives or forgiveness of their sins. But if one is justified, declared righteous by God, forgiven, they want to live a life for God. Turn aside from the evil of your doings and cease to do evil. It means, beloved, that we abhor it. We turn away from it. We turn away from it and we fight it in ourselves, those evil actions. That is the true nature of repentance, isn't it? Ceasing the doing of evil along with a wholesale turning to God. Do you see the need? Do you see your and my need for that true repentance and that true conversion? An entirely new manner of life is demanded. And that, beloved, brings us to our third point. That new life, and it comes through five more exhortations or commands, doesn't it? Now they are positive. The others were negative. Turn away from your sin. Cease to do evil. And now positively, learn to do well. And in Isaiah's day, that was first of all addressed to the leaders of God's people, the rulers, the priests, those who would be at the city gates listening to the oppressed. Addressed first of all to the leaders of the church, but then also to the people of the church. It's addressed to the ministers and the elders and the deacons today, but it is addressed to each one of us as individuals, isn't it? For unless the individual members of the church repent, the church doesn't repent. Unless the individual members of the church are reformed, are changed, renewed, the church does not reform or is not removed. King Isaiah worked for that reformation, didn't he? He could bring about a kind of reformation, but it has to be worked savingly in the hearts and lives of God's people. And that's not something that King Uzziah could do. It's only something that Jehovah God could do. Now let's look at that little phrase a moment. Learn to do good. Or learn to do well. 
that phrase, learn, implies that you and I, God's people, have to be taught. To do well means something new is in our life. Something has to be learned. It doesn't just come forth from us out of ourselves. Again, as John Kelvin puts it, the people are like scholars that haven't even learned the first lesson. The church is to be skilled in doing well, even as it was at present skilled at doing evil. And where are they going to learn that? Certainly not from themselves, but they learn it from God, don't they? He is the only true teacher of well-doing. It means that we get open, we open up our Bibles and we read it. What does God command of us? God teaches us. Isn't that the beautiful words of Psalter number 65? Grace and truth shall mark the way where the Lord his own will lead if, if his word they still obey and his testimonies heed. He who walks in godly fear in the path of truth shall go. Peace shall be his portion there, and his sons all good shall know. They that fear and love the Lord shall Jehovah's friendship know. He will grace to them accord, and his faithful covenant show. True or genuine conversion. Learning from God, following his word, that truth marks out our path. How we act on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday as well as Sunday. And now the next four exhortations in our text express, they lay out that concept of well-doing. Seek judgment. Those words mean devote yourself with zeal to pursue judgment or living righteously. Living righteously in every sphere of life. Take God's word and learn how to live righteously as a husband or as a wife in your marriage. Learn by God's word how to live righteously as children in obeying your parents or your teachers later on in school. Live righteously when you go to the place of employment. Not merely just putting in your time, but putting in your effort. Doing the best you can. Live righteously in your recreation. What you watch, what you read, what you do. Live righteously Guided by God's word, young people, as you date in what you do on your date and what you will not do on your dates. Every area of life, seeking the will of God, his justice and his truth. You see, in the covenant, carrying out these duties and responsibilities which a holy God has placed upon us, his covenant people. 
Now again, someone might say, oh, now you want to talk about the covenant? Oh, you're saying there's conditions in the covenant? There's no conditions in the covenant. And we're not guilty of that when we stress obedient lives. There are responsibilities in the covenant. Let me use an illustration. Marriage. Are there conditions in marriage? No. You're married for life, for better or for worse, health or sickness. Are there responsibilities in marriage? Of course there are. Husband, love your wives. Wives, listen to your husbands and honor them. Same thing with the covenant. Not conditions. It's an unconditional covenant. God maintains it. God perfects it. But there are responsibilities. As God's children, we are to love him as our father. We are to live for him that he may be glorified in us. And we'll talk about that this evening. So living in the covenant as God's children set right the oppressors. Those who are hurting those maybe that are looked down, those who are weak in themselves, not doing whatever we want or our sinful nature wants. Wrongdoing has had free course before in our lives, but now we need to restrain that. Wrongdoing amongst God's people. We know about that, don't we? Abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. There has to be a turning away from it, ceasing to do evil and learning to do well. It's not enough for a person who is an abuser to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but then not change. They have to show that sorrow, that repentance with a new life. Slander or gossip against other, or envy against someone, or jealousy, or bitterness, or hatred. Cease from that. Judge the fatherless and the widow. Plead for the widows. They're mentioned together there because of their helplessness. It's a symbol of all those who are weak and are hurting and without help. And the weakest members of the church should receive a just treatment. Care for them emotionally, physically, loving them. In Amos chapter 5, we read verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live, and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you. Hate evil and love the good and establish justice in the gate if it may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. What a calling. What a calling for us in our examination. That third point. Do I desire and am I striving to live a godly life of obedience to God? Do you see, beloved, the close connection between forgiveness and sanctification? The close connection between washing and doing well? There is no seeking and finding of forgiveness and justification except 
justification reveals itself in a life of sanctification, those two are inseparable. So, all the activities of our worship services, our praying, our singing, our preaching, the sacraments, they're certainly not condemned by God. They're commanded, but they have to be viewed not as an end in themselves, but rather as a means to a real life of righteousness and holiness and humility and lowliness and sanctification. Did you get that? Let me repeat it one more time. Our worship here on Sunday is not an end in itself. It's not we say, okay, I hear the word, it was correct word, good, I did that on Sunday, the Lord should be proud of me. No. Our action of worship should be the means so that we go out of this place on Sunday night ready to love and serve our God in obedience. Then it will go well with you in the church then God will hear our prayers because of this disconnect. God says, when you cry unto me, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. But when there is this genuine repentance, when there is this true conversion worked in us daily by God, then he will hear our prayer. There will be no peace for the wicked. But God's people will be redeemed through justice. So that man, that woman, whether young or old child, who confesses and forsakes their sin will certainly enjoy the favor of God. So listen to God's word. Wash you. Make you clean. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Amen. O Father in heaven, our sins are many in number. Not one of us is blameless. And if thou shouldst deal with us according to our sins, the answer would be destruction, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But we thank thee that in thy electing love thou hast chosen Zion as thine own, and that there is going to be a remnant kept to the day Jesus comes, who hearken to his word, who are woken up to see their sins and to lament them, and to cry out for thy forgiveness, but also the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We pray, bless us as a congregation and individual members as we carry out that examination in this week. For thy glory and in thy service. Amen.